Before President Nixon boarded the helicopter, he had to make another comment to the press. He was going to China, after all, the first president to visit the country since the revolution in 1949. If the trip failed, it would shatter his legacy and cripple any chance at a cordial relationship with the Chinese. But Nixon, he knew how to grandstand. If there was a postscript that I hope might be written with regard to this trip, it would be the words on the plaque which was left on the moon by our first astronauts when they landed there. We came in peace for all mankind. Thank you and goodbye. Ooh, that's a serious comparison. But so was the hostility between the two nations. China's leader, Chairman Mao, was history's most ruthless dictator, by far. The numbers are a little hazy, but it's estimated that he's responsible for over 40 million deaths. And Nixon had been emphatic that communism was a formidable threat. He often spoke out even against Mao himself. And now, now he wanted to meet with the guy? Welcome to Microbehaviors, a different kind of podcast that uses stories from the past to help you apply the latest behavioral research. In each episode, you'll get one small action that you can do today so you flourish at work, home, and in your relationships. I'm Andrew Webb. This is Microbehaviors. Let's get to it. Nixon was born into the rigor of a Quaker home in California a few years before World War I, and that meant little means for a man with big aspirations. Maybe that's what you get when you're named after one of the most famous medieval kings, Richard the Lionheart. The lack of wealth was a constant cloud over his head, most likely a rain cloud, the cumulonimbus type. When Duke offered a scholarship for law school, he jumped. His cohort, they immediately saw how determined he was to be the best, to work the hardest. But he lacked charm or tact with people, especially the kind you'd expect from a politician. They called him a gloomy Gus. Poor Nixon. His scholarship wasn't going to cover all the tuition, so what else could he do? He already cut his meals down to Milky Way bars and soup. That's when a maintenance worker found him. He'd built a makeshift bed in one of the tool sheds off campus, pleading with the worker not to say anything. I'll manage all right if you don't run me out. He wasn't as concerned about the cold as he was from what the wealthier students might say. Who knows what goes through the head of a guy living in an 8x12 room with no stove and cardboard to insulate you from the winter. Say what you will about Nixon, and I know there has been a whole lot that's been said about him, but the man went from living in a tool shed to the President of the United States. There was grit in that mind of his, right alongside the paranoia that led to his downfall. He was obsessed with his reputation. When grades were nearly out, he worried yet again he'd lose his ranking and he couldn't wait. It 
nod at him, ate him up, really. He needed to know, so he convinced two buddies to help. One night, the three crept silently into the admin building. The door was locked, so Nixon had the two hoist him in through the window above the door. He was breaking into the dean's office. Sound familiar? It was a dress rehearsal for Watergate. Eventually, he graduated and moved on to government, witnessing a revolution in politics multiple times. McCarthy, Goldwater, and eventually Kennedy. Nixon was in the thick of it. And now, now he had Mao. So when Nixon stepped onto the plane that day, he had actually no idea if he'd be able to sit down with the dictator. It turns out that they did meet, and it became known as a week that changed the world. We are now in the final hours of the president's momentous visit. This is the farewell banquet in Shanghai, a few hours before the president ends his unprecedented pilgrimage to peace and flies back to Washington. The guests here, Americans and Chinese alike, and the rest of the people around the world will one day have reason to thank Richard Nixon for having the courage and the vision to fly to Peking to further his search for a generation of peace. You might be thinking that this episode is about politics or global relations, but it's not, not really. It's about decision-making and the funny ways we delude ourselves along the way. Take, for example, after the two leaders met. One of Nixon's aides, Winston Lord, who traveled along to China, he said, We knew in our gut that Mao would meet Nixon. It would have been unthinkable if he didn't. They knew in their gut? The truth is they weren't so certain. Before the trip, the Chinese were more than vague, and Mao's health was declining rapidly. If you review the notes, there were countless discussions on how they would handle the press if Mao didn't show up, or what talking points they would use to spin the story in the president's favor. Nixon needed that kind of coverage, and he always ensured his teams were prepared, maybe even paranoid like he was. So why was Winston Lord so convinced after the meeting took place? It's a common thing we all do, actually. It's called the hindsight bias, a tendency to see past events as predictable only after we've learned the outcome. We tend to forget how little we actually knew in the past. Some call it the I knew it all along effect. Daniel Kahneman explains it this way. Once you adopt a new view of the world or any part of it, you immediately lose much of your ability to recall what you used to believe before your mind changed. In other words, once you've seen the light, it's just inconceivable to think we were once in the dark. This magnificent banquet marks the end of our stay in the People's Republic of China. We have been here a week. This was the week that changed the world. Winston Lord wasn't the only one. Before Nixon left in 1972, two researchers surveyed a number of people on 15 potential outcomes of his trip to China. Would Mao actually meet with Nixon? After the trip, they asked the same people to recall the probability that they had originally assigned to each outcome. What they found is 
just like Winston Lord, the people greatly exaggerated the expected probability of the meeting, even if they doubted it beforehand. Hindsight bias makes us overconfident and influences our decision-making. Researchers measured entrepreneurs, for example, and 77% of them at the beginning of their journeys believed that the business would grow into a successful business. But after all of these businesses failed, all of them, 58% said they had originally believed the company would be a success. Now, my dad, he's an entrepreneur, and I get this. I even empathize. And I think it's perhaps why I've heard him say over and over again that entrepreneurism is a disease. This shows up everywhere. Courtrooms, politics, medicine. Over and again, this nasty little habit robs us of our ability to learn from actual experiences, especially the ones that mean the most, our mistakes. It also fosters a habit of blaming and living with a lack of responsibility. Why in the world did that executive hire that guy? They should have seen the red flags. I saw them coming a mile away. The doctor says, I never liked that technique anyway. I knew it would cause more problems. Or, there was no way that relationship was going to last. I called it after their first date. Consider this situation. You walk into the kitchen just as your child is reaching into the cookie jar on the edge of the counter. He's little, so he's stretching out over the open drawer that he's using to prop himself up. His hand is so close, but he can't quite make it. Now, if I were to ask you to come up with 10 likely outcomes, how difficult would that be? What if I asked you to think of just two? Now, follow me on this one, because it's pretty interesting. You'd think that forcing you to come up with 10 likely outcomes would help reduce the feeling to say, I knew it all along. I mean, you have to work hard to get that creative. And honestly, I've seen professionals use this exercise to do just that. But they're wrong. Coming up with more outcomes after the fact is taxing. And because it's so taxing, your mind sends feedback saying, well, if it's that hard to come up with outcomes, then surely, surely there must have only been one or two ways the event could have turned out. And suddenly you begin to develop a framework, believing that situations really only have an inevitable destiny. Only one way it can turn out. This experiment was done with a number of participants, and those that came up with only two improved their hindsight bias. So what? Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because in the real world, these are people that practice cognitive flexibility. They're able to learn from past experiences, and they aren't walking around with an aura of unjustified confidence. Yeah, it's a big deal. Big enough that if I had known this, I could have saved myself from a world of hurt. Years ago, my brothers decided to take a trip to Italy and Spain. Now, both of them had lived there for a couple of years, and they invited me to come to show me around. I was very excited. But I was also very married. And we had a baby girl at home. Gallivanting off to Europe is a young man's game for college kids or maybe rich retirees. And it was a big ask. And what made it even more difficult was that we were going to Siena to see the polio. 
For those of you who don't know, the Palio is a medieval horse race in the middle of the town square. The 17 different neighborhoods, they've all been coming together, gambling, jockeying, fighting, and feuding over the last 500 years to win each time. It's a badge of honor that they carry over their neighbors, especially, especially the ones that they can't stand. Honestly, it's an incredible experience. It's a cultural feast. And for my wife, it was her dream to see the polio. How bad did she want to see it? Enough to name our firstborn child after the city, Siena. But I did go. And just like Winston Lord, I knew in my gut it was going to be worth it. That my amazing wife would love to hear the stories. That's what I told myself, at least. And it's what I've come to believe about why I went. Until, just recently, I read my journal, when I wrote about my decision. Oh, boy. It was far different than what I had been saying. I can smell the justification on the page written nearly eight years ago. It's abundantly clear that I knew I was hurting my wife, something I wasn't willing to admit after the fact. Here's exactly what I wrote. Kay found out that I'm going to Siena to the polio last night. She is sad. Feels like she misses out all the time, and I'm always off on adventures. I've got to find a way to help her find the independence and opportunities she deserves. Oh, Andrew. What were you thinking? Don't you see? This is the danger of hindsight bias. We're living under a false narrative of our own design. We're not Nostradamus, and we need a microbehavior to help us remember that fact. Here it is. Are you ready? Document your decisions. Identify the data. Type them out. Write in a journal. Be very clear about the criteria that was so important to you before a decision was made. And then, above all, put that in a place to review after the fact. I've seen some put an actual event in their calendar or schedule an email to themselves for a future date. What we're doing is reminding our future selves not to get too full of it. We say that hindsight is 2020, meaning you have the advantage of looking back with answers, but it's actually far more drastic. We don't only look back and just analyze, we look back and assume that Who we are now is who we were then, and that because of this newfound wisdom, we can repeat the outcome for similar events. And nobody understood this more than President Nixon. A year after the Jubilee with Mao, Nixon was up for re-election. Now, the outcome wasn't certain, and not knowing, nod at him. It ate him up, just like his days as a law student. So what does Nixon do? Well, we all know what he did. Watergate, break-in, cover-up, slush funds. The man was drawing from a template built long ago as a young student, desperate to see his grades before anybody else. But Andrew, Nixon did document his decisions. Hello, the tapes? He recorded everything. Ah, yes. Those elusive tapes. He sure did. He just did it a little too late. What Nixon needed was to document the justifications, the reasons he used long before he broke into Watergate, when he tried to do the same thing at the dean's office as a young student. 
he felt he got away with it then, who knows how long that rationale rattled around in his head. Building superiority, building ego, building, well, how did you put it, Mr. President? Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. After his impeachment, David Frost sat down with Nixon. He lobbied softballs for a few days, but finally dug in and got the man to reveal exactly what was he thinking. How could he have done it? His answer, it's an indictment for all of us, really. Because I feel responsible. Even though I did not feel that I had uh, engaged in these activities consciously, So, what was Nixon thinking? He wasn't. He faced a bias that blinded him. He got away with it before. He knew all along he'd get away with it again. With hindsight bias, what we're really doing is rewriting our role, making us the hero regardless of the outcome. That's a dangerous self-narrative to take into future decisions. Our success or failures in life really comes down to how well we make decisions. And we're often making them with faulty justifications. I wonder, I just wonder, what would have happened if he could have just read the feelings he had before he broke into the dean's office? Before he, well, shall we say, was cursed by his initial success? He'd no doubt have been surprised at how little he knew, just as we all would have. But more importantly, if we do document our decisions, we'll develop a pattern of openness and intellectual humility. We might even say, I guess I didn't know it all along.